It is a great privilege. Um, Let us never forsake the meeting together, the body. And um, is no, there's no number that will uh, stop this from being a valuable time of us gathering together and, and um, uh, hopefully mutually encouraging one another and growing together. I'm not, uh, though I'm a youth pastor, I'm not very flashy. And uh, I'm not one to, um, to tell a lot of clever stories. I, I want my deepest passion is for people to know the Scriptures because in them, they point us to where life is found. And we look to so many things that we think gives us life, but there's no life there. It's here, knowing the Word of God. As I, I, I love that song as we, we sing, the Father turned His face away and we're reminded of the words of Christ on the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But you, we need to know that is not Jesus crying out in despair more so than it is Him preaching to the crowd the words of Psalm 22. This is a bonus. I'm sorry. But when we get to Psalm 22, verse 16, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we know a thousand years before, the man who was Jesus descended from said, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones, they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, for my clothing they cast lots. And that's exactly what was happening. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. You, O my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword. And in that moment when they're saying, he's crying out for Elijah, let the angels save him. He's saying, no, I will be delivered. And we learn that it's the God at the end of Hebrews who... As, we, as the writer of Hebrews prays to him, is the one who resurrected the Son from the grave. We should never take the Word of God lightly. And we should see that from it flows all of life. Uh, Luke asked me to talk about faith. And um, that is a complicated topic. Because faith, it almost has become such a way that it's not even a helpful word for us to use anymore. I'm going to read from Romans 3, 21 through 26. And then if you have your Bibles open, flip over to chapter 11 of Romans and we'll open with a prayer of Paul as we pray together. Romans 3, 21 But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. 
for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's play Romans eleven, thirty-three. Let's pray. God, we come before you, recognizing the depth of your riches, wisdom, and knowledge. How unsearchable are your judgments? And how inscrutable are your ways? Which of us can know your mind? Which one of us could be your counselor? Which one of us has given you a gift in which you should repay us? For from you and through you and to you are all things. To you be glory forever. And all God's people said, Amen. I want us to discover... There's this expression that Paul coins in, in English. It's very popular. It's justification by faith. But in order to understand faith, I think we have to understand a little bit about justification. That's a big word. And again, probably not a word that's super helpful. But if we, as we read Romans, it's important for us to know that Paul is writing to a community that is... Uh, litigious. We, we mirror that. That means that we enjoy uh, legalities. We enjoy watching Judge Judy, the people's court, Judge Joe Brown. You know, Judge Judy makes like $40 million a year. I mean, let's put that in perspective. The number one pastime in Rome was going to court so you could throw vegetables at people. So you, you participate in the um, festivities, so to speak. And uh, Paul is writing, there's two metaphors that he uses in the book of Romans particularly. One of a court case and one of slavery. As in there was, at one point, the, the Senate in Rome decided, you know, it would be a really good idea so we could tell who was slaves and who wasn't. We make them all wear the same thing. And then they thought, oh, Wait. Once they realize there's so many of them, we'll be in real trouble. So they vetoed that idea. So Paul is writing to a people who will understand. He's writing to a people in pictures. That, so, they, so they can com- understand what he's trying to communicate. Because Peter writes in his second epistle, Paul's, Paul's letters are hard. He's like, Peter's like, I don't know. They're tough. Uh, Paul's, but Paul's not easy. He, he uses a lot of very specific local language. In Philippi, when you go look at the letter of the Philippians, that, that's a military colony. It was founded by Mark Antony. You guys know the civil war in Rome that led to Julius Caesar becoming, well, uh, Caesar Augustus, Julius Caesar died, and there's a civil war, and Caesar Augustus, you know, takes over. But leading through that war, Mark Anthony rewards Philippi, these soldiers, 
And so if you read the letter to the Philippians, there's over 75 words related to military language. Paul speaks to his audience. But, but we also, we're going to use the whole scripture to understand this word righteousness. And I want to start off with good news. Now, first, it's going to sound terrible. Because it's a terrible story. But it's good news. As we read 2 Peter, the one who says Paul's hard to understand, though most people would concede that 2 Peter's pretty difficult on his own, right? Uh, He calls a man from the Old Testament righteous. He says, righteous Lot. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds, and he saw and heard. Uh, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Have you guys ever read Genesis 18 and 19? Righteous is not the word I would use, Peter. We have Lot living in Sodom, and three men one who I would say is probably what we would call a Christophany, come to Abraham. Two of them are divine beings that in our language, nomenclature, we would call them angels. Though the Old Testament would probably sell you something closer to sons of God. Um, you know, Genesis 6. These angels come and, and, the, and this, it says God tells Abraham, you're going to have a kid. And his name's going to be Isaac, Sarah laughs, etc., and Abraham's okay. Sure. Sounds great. And uh, he says, uh, you know, come on and walk with me. Now, this is after, like, Abraham's already had a lot of trouble with this whole situation. with uh, In somewhat of what would be called an illegitimate child. But anyway, Abraham follows them down the way to the valley where they can see Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, he tells them, hey, man, we're going to wipe this place out. And Abraham, you know, barters with God, so to speak. What if there's 30? What if there's four? What if there's 10 good people there? And and God says, okay, sure, sure. We'll we'll spare it if there's 10. And we go to the next scene. The angels, the divine beings who are with him, march into the city and they go to the town square and they're going to sleep in the town square. And Lot, who's by the gate, who's clearly become a man of prominence within the city, says, uh, please come stay at my house. It is not safe out here. Um, I'm going to clean this up a little bit due to the mixed uh, crowd. But do know that this was read aloud to children in every seven years. <laughs> so, um, Lot uh, brought these two men into his house and then a mob shows up and bangs on the door and says, um, let us have those men so that we may know them. And you can put that into our modern vernacular of, I'll use the word abuse. And then this is where Peter gets his idea. Lot said, this is wicked, brothers. Don't do this. And then they threaten Lot and say, we're going to do it to you. And then the two men pull Lot inside the house. And they keep continuing hitting on the door. No doubt, regardless of how big Lot's house is at this point, his family most likely is not just hiding in their rooms. If they have their own rooms even. They're probably there by the door. And Lot begins to negotiate. 
And there's fathers of daughters in here. And I don't think any one of us would ever result to saying what Lot said. You can't have my guess, but I have these two virgin daughters. And he says, basically, I'll open the door and I will put them out there with you. I think what would go... Now, these girls are betrothed to be married, so they're of age. I I think that what would be going through their minds in that moment waiting for the answer must be an incredible amount of fear. As their father is willing to not fight for them, but to just give them over. All, All really in the name of what Lot would call hospitality. And probably much to their uh, excitement, the daughters, the men outside say no. And then God strikes them blind. And the angels tell the family in the morning, we've got to leave. And Lot's like, well, what if we don't leave? And they said, no, you're leaving. It's not like he was like, okay, we're going to leave. You know, because they're like, we're going to destroy the city. He said, well, well, what if we didn't? They, it says they grab the family by the arms and drag them out of the city. Not willingly. Not by choice. They go. The wife at some point during the destruction clearly turns back. She's encapsulated with salt. So we, we know that's what happens to her. The story doesn't get any better. It gets worse. Now it's Lot's daughters who are the perpetrators. They become the abusers. Lot's lost everything. He's got nothing. He's down and out. It's pretty easy. Dad's been getting drunk every night. Let's get him really drunk. Two nights in a row, they get him really drunk. They abuse their father. They have children. Now, God redeems those lines of children in the future as we see David and Solomon both be descendants of the sons of Ami and the sons of Moab. But that's where the narrative ends for Lot. The story ends with him drunk and abused. And we read this story and we would never think, what a righteous man. Where does Peter get off calling someone righteous? What does righteous mean? You see, what we're going to see in this passage and what we see in the Scripture as whole is the righteousness of Lot is not dependent upon Lot. It's dependent upon a God who is faithful. Lot, as far as we know, didn't seem to have a relationship with the God of Lot. But someone very close to Lot did. Someone who had already once rescued him from the spoils of war in chapter 14. His uncle. So in Genesis 19, 29. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham. 
And he sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. So who does God remember? The one who, in a few chapters before, he deemed righteous. And the one who, when he called in Genesis 12, through you the families of the world will be blessed, including your own. You see, in this sense, now we see it unfold in our reality that it's not us that's righteous. But we know someone who is. That's why Peter can say, righteous law. See, we have a God who is faithful and a God who is righteous. As we look in the rest of the New Testament, or the Old Testament, sorry, we know that it's not, not because of Israel was someone was a special people, but it was because God remembered His promises. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God and walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep your God um, keep commandments and statutes of the Lord which I'm commanding you for today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven, and the heaven of heavens and the earth with all that's in it. Yet the Lord set His heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. That's righteousness. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner. Therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. And by His name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. There's nothing special about these people other than God set His heart on them. God is the one who is righteous and faithful. Therefore, the circumcision must be of your heart. So now looking at the faithfulness of God, we're going to unpack a little bit in the Romans chapter 3, verse 21. What is righteousness? In expanded language, we would say that righteousness is the just judicial administration of God. That means it is the standard by which He judges. He is the judge. It's the business of a judge. That's what righteousness means in this context. He's the judge. It's His business. I have an uncle who's a judge. It's His business. Right? That's, a, that's an easy way to put it. So God is the judge and we have a new standard. What was the old standard? Well, to be honest, it's not really different. But the people, the people in Paul's time saw the standard to be the works of the law. Circumcision, obedience to... Uh, certain rituals, setting expectations, things like that. 
But God sets a, uh, a different standard. You see, but now the righteousness of God, His rule, the way He administers justice, has been manifested apart from the Torah. Let's understand the law there is Torah. Torah means the Old Testament. Okay? And although the Torah, the, the Torah, the Old Testament, and the prophets bear witness to it, they bear witness to this, what's going to happen apart from the law. Go read Jeremiah 31. Go read Ezekiel 36. You'll see this, this new covenant. He says, um, the righteousness of God is now through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. You know, the original law that was laid down as Jesus sums it up was love your neighbor as yourself and love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And for those who are now students of the New Testament, those of us who are Christians, will notice that actually God's method of redeeming people hasn't changed. God's perception of that has because we see in the Old Testament, God's very particular about how He's worshipped. So much so, if you don't worship God correctly, He will kill you. Right? We have that regularly. There's a man who he tries to stop the Ark of the Covenant from falling on the ground. He touches it and he drops dead. Because he wasn't supposed to touch it. We have 80 men when the Ark was recovered from the Philistines. They party and dance around it. They celebrate. They put it on a high hill and they look in it. And they die. God is holy. And He must be worshipped in a certain way. Now we worship in spirit and truth. But we have here this righteous standard that has now been replaced, so to speak, in Paul's mind, communicating to his, to his listeners who are most likely a mixed group of people. We, got, we will have Jews and Gentiles, but... Either way, they probably have an extensive knowledge, better knowledge than us, of the Old Testament. They were made to memorize it and learn it from a very young age. And they didn't have a lot of distractions like uh, Facebook to Judge Judy to throw us off too much. Um, this new standard in which one is made righteous or deemed justified is the gospel. It is trust, faith in this person of Jesus. And I, I say that the trust because when I said before, faith is not a helpful word anymore. Because faith, we have faith in lots of things. Um, and often in our church culture, faith is a mental ascent to a series of propositions. So I'll explain that. I believe that Jesus was the Son of God. I believe He rose from the grave. I believe the Bible is true. Those are all propositions. I believe. Believing those propositions will not save you. When we get to James... James will say, even the demons believe this. 
So we have to question if, what is a demonic faith? A faith of propositions without any relationship. Trust is something different. This word, this series of words in the original language communicate trust, confidence. It can even be that which is entrusted. When we get to, to Romans chapter 1 and he talks about the faith in the first few verses. And I've heard, let's our faith, our mutual faith be encouraged by that. That's not faith like, I believe in this thing. It's not something that we muster in ourselves. It's, it is the thing that which is entrusted to us. What is entrusted to the church? This precious message that Paul longs to preach to those in Rome in verse 15. I long to preach the gospel to you. Faith is the gospel. It's the gospel message. Now when we get here, faith in Jesus Christ or faith of Jesus Christ, it is talking about trust. Now the question is, whose faith is it? If people don't know, this is one of the most debated arguments in all of scholarship in the New Testament. Is it by Jesus' faithfulness or is it by your faith in Jesus? Does the faith come from you or does the faith come from Jesus? Now based on the fact that the next verb is to those who trust, my answer to that question, though those may differ, is yes. Language is complex and has various meanings. But we'll talk more about our faith, obviously, as we go on. Verse 20, uh, 23. For all, everyone, right? There is, uh, all have sinned. And this, this falls short is, is not accurate because this seems like we are moral, moral failures. Paul's not talking about our moral failure here. We've fallen short of the glory of God. I mean, we all memorize that verse in Bible school. It's not what that means. It means lack. We're not divine. We lack the divinity. We lack the character of God. We, we didn't like trip at the finish line. We didn't, like, you know, didn't make it over the first hurdle or something. Like, oh, we didn't make it. Like, now we need Jesus to like push us a little bit on the race. No, you, you fundamentally, completely, wholly lack glory. You don't have it. You are the furthest from divine. Right, okay? Now that's, that's the promise of hope that we have to wait for us, that we will have divine bodies, resurrected bodies, be glorified with God. But at this point, you lack that. Everyone lacks it. I don't care if you're the son of the high priest in Jerusalem, and I don't care if you're Mowgli in the Indian jungle. You lack it. None of you have it. But there's one who did. But we all are this way. See, what Paul is getting at here, because the next thing he says, right, is, uh, for there is no distinction. Romans is about this. The whole book of Romans is about this. There is a people of God, Israel, in the Old Testament promise that they would restore Israel. 
Israel should be restored. Remember that the, the top, the northern tribes, the ten tribes, they went into exile. The Assyrians carried them off. But there was a promise that God would restore them. And what, what has happened is Paul is reasoning and telling them, this is what God is doing. When we get to chapter 11, for all Israel will be saved. And you unpack what that says from chapters 9 and 10. As creation waits and groans for the sons of glory to the sons of God to be revealed. It is the church. The lost tribes of Israel are the nations. Read Romans. Read Romans when you go home. The whole book, you can do it. I believe in you. Pull up on YouTube and listen to the audio. Read Romans. Listen for the word nations. Listen for the word Gentiles. It's the same word. Paul is saying these people from the Old Testament that went into exile and disappeared, God, they've intermingled so much with the people. We're not, we're not looking like, oh, I think this is a descendant of Dan. Here's a descendant of Asher. Here's a descendant of Naphtali. They've so intermingled that the lost tribes of Israel are the nations. So he's riding to one of the most metropolitan cities. You know, everyone's there. It's not just me, Jew. He says, first to the Jew, he came first to us. We have the Old Testament. We have all these promises. We have the temple. We have all these great blessings. But no, the gospel, there is no distinction. God has no distinction whatsoever between Jew and Gentile, barbarian, slave, Scythian, Greek, etc., male, female. There is no distinction. God is an impartial judge, and He judges with a just judicial administration of righteousness. And if you are not in the new way that has been manifested outside of the law to be made right with God, then you will incur God's wrath. Chapter 1, verse 18. And following to the end of chapter 1, the Gentiles are condemned. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. And they reveal the wrath of God. Chapter 2, who are you, O man? He's putting, you know, what, well, you know, Paul is actually, when he had those questions in Romans, he's talking to a made up Jew in his mind. There's a person, who are you, O man? And then he says, look at you. Look what you've done. You say you're nauseated by idols. But yet, you worship them. You, you're, you're, you're leading the blind. You are a light. And yet, you, you commit all of these sins. The first two chapters of Romans, after we get to the, through the introduction, 16 and 17 to chapter 1, that's it. That's what Romans is about. 18 through chapter, into chapter 2 is... Well, in chapter 3, we get everyone condemned. Jews are condemned. Gentiles are condemned. Therefore, we all lack the glory of God. We have all sinned. We are all damned without this new way that has manifested itself apart from, but witnessed to, by the Torah. Right? Does that make sense? The whole letter is this. The whole letter is Paul uniting people under one name. God prepares us to be justified. The word grace is another one of those words that we've kind of ruined. You're justified by His grace as a gift. The word gift is uh, 
this word. Um, it really, it's an adverb. So you, you know adverbs, we had the L-Y, right? So it'd be like, giftly. This grace is giftly given to us. Um, and grace also is the word for gift. So like when we go to verse 5 of chapter 1, we've been given this grace and this apostleship, talking about him and the church. We, we've been given a role as messengers or envoys for the gospel. That's what Paul is saying there. Some of those who really hold on to the big A of apostle, it's, no, I'm not trying to undermine that at all. Um, just what Paul said. But we have grace, and it's a gift. And what is the gift? It's, uh, we received it giftly through the uh, redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This, this giftly grace is justification. This judicial system of God has looked at us through the gospel lens and rendered us innocent. Not because some price hasn't been paid. There must be a price paid in court. We could talk a whole lot about first century slavery. We don't, people don't realize the wages of sin is death. Paul is personifying sin as the sin master. And you're a slave. And the wage was what a slave would earn and put in his account to earn interest to one day hopefully buy his freedom. But as much as you saved and as much as you scrimped to get out from underneath the slave master, you could never buy your freedom. So Christ paid the slave's debt of death on the cross. Because that's how slaves were dying. That's how they were put to death. The only way for a slave to truly be free is to die. The slave prices had so inflated that essentially what they did is they worked out a, a, a deal where, yeah, you're a free person, but you're still basically indentured servitude to me. And that allowed slaves to enter into contracts and to make more money for their masters. All of, all of Romans 6 is about the slave master's sin and us being free from it. And then we get to 7. And then how do we get free from this, this uh, body of sin in the end of chapter 7? Go to verse 8, chapter 8, verse 1. We've transferred to a new dominion, a new kingdom, a new master. We're slave to somebody. So we have this theme that's going to go out throughout the book of Romans. God prepares us to be justified with His gift, to be deemed innocent, to be righteous by His favor. Remember, the first time favor is used in the Bible, this is how it's understood in the Old Testament. It's never translated as grace. It's always translated as favor. It was Noah. Noah found favor in God's eyes. And guess what else Noah was? He walked with God and therefore he was righteous. So um, we, we, we sit back though and think of the, um, the, word, the pro, word of the Proverbs. He said, uh, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So God has made himself an abomination. <laughs> uh, that would be the case if there wasn't someone who sat in our place and paid the redemption price. The redemption price of, of the slave to go free. The redemption price for us to have a new master. Christ paid the redemption price by His blood, the propitiation, the conciliatory sacrifice, this public 
shedding of blood where we, the slave, deserved the shedding of blood on the cross. It prepares us to believe. It was God's show of righteousness, His divine forbearance. He passed over former sins. He passed over and shows His righteousness in the, proper, in the present time so that He would be the one who is just. He is the justifier. And uh, He justifies those who have uh, trust in Christ, in Jesus. So we understand a little bit that justice is the way God meets out His judgments. That's justification, that's righteousness. These are all the same words, essentially, in the, in the original language. And we kind of understand faith as being trust, but we have to ask the questions, well, what is that? how does that uh, uh, unpack a little bit? So we're kind of wrapping up here, because there, there's three um, letters in the New Testament that use this story of Abraham. Right? Romans 4, and James 2, and um, Hebrews 11. So, Paul says that it's no works of the law, but Abraham wasn't even circumcised. The law didn't even exist when Abraham was deemed righteous. And he was deemed righteous because he had faith. Okay. So what we know is that Abraham trusted, not in the promises of God more so, he trusted in the God of the promise. Right? So we have Abraham saying, I'm going to trust. Now, he immediately messes up. And his wife's like, hey, why don't you uh, hang out with Hagar over here and have a baby? That was a bad idea. But he's still deemed righteous. And then uh, James takes it a little further. He says, show me a faith without works and I'll show you a dead faith. He says, here's how Abraham showed his. He uh, walked up a hill with his son and tied him to... Um, an altar and raised the knife to plunge it into his son's chest and he was going to burn his son's body. Faith in action. You can say all day long you believe in these propositions. But, but if, if you have no action with your faith, they cannot be divorced from one another. If you say you believe and that there's no evidence of said belief, you don't believe. That's what James says. And so I want us, as uncomfortable as it makes us, by saying, yes, it's by faith alone. But what kind of faith? See, that's why faith is a bad word. It's by trust alone, relationship and trust in the one who will redeem you. We have a hope that we look for. And that's got a logical hope that this king will return, that he will bring judgment, and we will not experience wrath on the day of the Lord. That's his promise. In fact, the reward is much greater. The writer of Hebrews takes it even further. And he said, Abraham believed if he took that knife and jabbed it into the chest of Isaac and watched life pull from his eyes, that if God so chooses, as Isaac was the son of the promise, he would bring him back to life. That's faith. Abraham is being told to do something that seems to be very much opposed to what God has ever had anyone ever do, ever. 
Hell in the Old Testament and the New is described as a place where children are sacrificed. And yet we have this man I think that we have this problem where we're told that if we don't have enough faith, things are not going to work out. As if it's some sort of magical power that we manifest in ourselves by, and then we just shoot it out. Here you go to God. Like, <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. Like guys are like, look at all the faith in my faith bank. I have to do it, guys. Oh my goodness. Oh, wow, they must really believe. <laughs> The writer of Hebrews goes on to say, by faith they were sawn in half. By faith they were put to death. By faith they lost. By faith they hurt. By faith they struggled. By faith. No. There is no faith bank. There is either faithfulness or faithlessness. There's no in-between. Either you trust in the goodness of God in the midst of your sorrows, struggles, trials, joy, all of these things, or you don't. Is God good? Do you trust Him? In the words of C.S. Lewis, He's not saved, but He's good. Do you trust that's true? That's, that's the question that we are posed. Because if we believe that we've been redeemed and changed and the Holy Spirit indwells us, then the radicalness of our faith must be evident in our life. And the only two ways that manifests in the Bible is by the proclamation boldly before uh, a people who are willing to persecute you of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the only way that that is confirmed is through suffering. And a lot of us sit here as Americans, we think, I don't suffer. And Christians all over the world are in hiding. They're imprisoned. They're beaten. They're sold into slavery. And they're put to death. And we have very little concept of this. But I, I will say, not to give us clear consciences, because we should ask the question, why is the church not persecuting? Because when the church is persecuted, it grows. Paul says we don't battle against flesh and blood, but we battle against authorities and powers and principalities. We battle against the demonic. You see, Satan's end game and the demo demonic entity's end game is not victory. They know they can't win. But it's the delaying of the inevitable is the best they can do. As long as we keep people from sharing their lives, for sharing their Savior, for fulfilling the great commandment, maybe we can hold off this uh, lake of fire and stuff for a little while. That's what, that's what actual demonic battling is. I, I have... Um, I don't know if you guys have ever encountered anyone that claims to be possessed by demons. I have. It was an interesting experience. Uh, we don't like to think about these kinds of things because we think, oh, that was then and now we have science. Um, 
but the truth of the matter is, is that there is plenty of demonic work. I don't think it's as prevalent because I do think that Christ has bound the demonic to an extent so that they don't operate, say, like in the days of Jesus. But there is demonic activity. Uh, and it happens. And that's, we do, there is oppression there. I'm sure, no doubt, you've prayed for, cared for, shared the gospel with people. You, you just, you, oh man, it breaks your heart to see them reject the gospel. They're accountable and responsible for what's happening there. But we must give note to the demonic element that, that we've seen churches be torn apart. We've seen communities be torn apart from disunity. And it is the uh, demonic element that we battle. It's not, you know, oh, we've, we found Legion and this old lady over here and we're going to pray him out and send him into some pigs or something. That, it's, not, it's not really what's going on anymore. It's more subtle. It's, in some ways, it's more sinister. But this is the closest thing I think we have to true persecution. Just because someone says something bad about Christians on TV doesn't mean we're being persecuted. So just because someone says something insulting to you about your faith, it's not, it's not it. I mean, people are going to revile you and they're not going to take this message well. But also, we show distinction unlike God. We, we look at people and say, you're not really worthy of this all my time. So I get to talk bad about you. I get to say this person's unvaluable. They fit into a group or culture or whatever. Fill in the blank that you don't like that makes you feel uncomfortable and therefore write that person off. And I uh, don't know any of you, you know, well in this room at all, but I know you well enough to know that's true. Because I'm the chief of that. And um, it's really easy for us to dismiss folks who need to hear that there's hope because we think God couldn't, God couldn't save them. Or, and it would just really inconvenience me. And, and part of it's like we really don't know how to have gospel conversations. So uh, that's a whole other thing. We, we, we're talking about faith. Where does this faith come from? That's what we're in here. Where does faith come from? You know, the writers of Hebrews, and they call it the Hall of Faith, this famous chapter. He says, and without faith, it is impossible. This is verse 6. It's impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. The only way to please God is through faith. Through trust and confidence in the Father. Okay. So, all I need to do is believe and trust that God is who He says He is and that I, I have this and I need to pursue a relationship and I need to have evidence of that relationship. I need to do activity. But then we have to ask the question, where does grace come from? Because Paul in Romans isn't super interested in actually explaining the, the origins of faith. Uh, we can get around about maybe a little bit in Ephesians, but to be honest, linguistically, as much as we want it to match up, it doesn't tell us where faith came from actually. The grammar doesn't tell us. The writer of Hebrews actually does tell us. Here's, here's how he ends his book. Go to, go to the verse 20 of chapter 13. Now may the God of peace, 
who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The writer of Hebrews spends 12 and a half chapters telling us this is what you must do. If you don't embrace the salvation, this great salvation, how could you possibly escape God's wrath? Don't you know it's impossible for those who have walked away to be restored to repentance? Chapter 6. His warnings are stern. It's like the prophets of the Old Testament. They have to go and say this hard message to God. And then they turn back to God and now they have to tell God. One of my professors says it's like being between a rock and a hard place. You've got these people who are like, don't want to believe, don't want to repent. They're being told that judgment is coming, condemnation is coming if they don't turn. And then you have a God who's telling you to tell you all these things, and now you have to speak to God on behalf of the people. And what does he say? God, now that I've said these things, you, you have to equip us with everything good so that we can do your will. That's his prayer. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. This word working is the word used in other places in Hebrews for create. God, the only way that we can do our part is if you create in us that which is pleasing to you. And the writer of Hebrews says the only thing that is pleasing to God is faith. Righteousness comes from God. Faith comes from God. It is God who goes all the way to make the relationship and reconcile man to himself. And it's fully realized in the person of Jesus. When you doubt, when you struggle, when you're lost, when you feel hopeless, we look to the person of Jesus. And therefore we know, we know in the person of Jesus that we have hope and secure ground in God. I'll leave you with a prayer, two prayers. One, the prayer of John Newton. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. He was once a slave trader. And he wrote On Abolition and helped William Wilberforce abolish slavery in England. He wrote a lot of hymns. He was a good pastor. And uh, an incredible man of prayer. And this is one of the hymns he wrote as a prayer. He says, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. He asked for faith and love and grace. Might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Some of y'all know these words. What an incredible prayer. But he goes on to tell how terrible the answer was. 
Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hope that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, cast out my feelings and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried, wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ for self from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst seek thy all in me. What a beautiful prayer. And what a scary, scary outcome. But in it, life is found. Abundant life is found. I I encourage you, I challenge you to pray for grace and faith. These gifts of God to draw us into relationship with Himself so that the earthly joys that we think will satisfy us um, will become grow strangely dim. Another word of a hymn writer. So I pray the last words of Romans over us. Let's pray together. God, you are able to strengthen all according to our gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, which is according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to your command. Eternal God, so that obedience to the faith is brought forth. You alone are wise, God. To, be, to you be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.